we ended up with 893 insured patients who did one IVF cycle and did not return for treatment for at least one year, and they didn't achieve a live birth. Two-thirds of them did not seek care elsewhere. So two-thirds of those patients were pure dropouts. When we asked them why they dropped out, 40% said it was too stressful. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Now here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today I'm with Dr. Alice Domar, PhD, who is the Executive Director of Mar Center for the Mind Body Health Center and the Director of Mind Body Services at Boston IVF. She established the very first ever Mind Body Center for Women's Health. She is a has been a guest on Dateline, on CNN, on PBS, on CBS, on Good Morning America, among many others. She is the board, she's a board member of a number of organizations, including but not limited to Resolve, the National Infertility Association. And she has helped launch the apps Ferticom and Ferticstrong. Dr. Ali Domar, Ali, welcome to the program. Thanks, Griffin. Nice to be here. I brought you on for the specific purpose is that you and I have been on the circuit for the last few years speaking at conferences. And very often I'm talking about how to get patients and you're talking about how to keep them. Yes. And you've done a lot of research. And even though I've heard you speak probably six or seven times, I often find some of the research to be surprising to me or counterintuitive and nobody knows it better than you. So I want to talk today about dropout, about patient retention, about training for providers and staff and the reasons why patients drop out and what we can do to keep them. Yep. That's what I've been, been that's sort of been my research focus for about four years now. How did you start with that? I guess if I'm looking at things purely from a, a business perspective, I would be interested in that because there's a cost for bringing people in the door and then you want to make sure that they stay from that. And also from the standpoint of providing the best treatment that you can't help people if you can't help them. So how did that, how did all the research start? Well, it was, I think the first time I became aware of you know, the epidemic of dropouts in our patient population was actually fertility and sterility came to me in about, I think it was 2004. And they were about to publish, I think, four studies out of Europe, all of which looked at reasons for insured patients to drop out. And they asked me to read all four and to write an editorial. So that was actually the first time the issue came to my attention because I think until 2004, I assumed what everybody else assumed, that there were only, you know, really three reasons why patients drop out of treatment. Number one is pregnancy, which is a very good reason to drop out of treatment. Number two is because the physician said, you know what, your prognosis is just too poor. Your chances of success with treatment are dismal. And you need to consider donor egg, donor sperm, whatever, but I'm not going to have you go through another cycle using your eggs and or your partner's sperm. 
So that's called, you know, physician censoring. And the third reason is money. Much more common in the U.S. because there are a lot of countries in Europe which do have insurance coverage, but there are patients who don't have insurance coverage or who run out of insurance coverage. So everybody assumed, and I think everybody wrote about, that was the three reasons why people dropped out. Pregnancy, physician censoring, or money. However, what the all four studies came out in 2004 showed, in fact, in insured pay, I mean, patients who don't have insurance, the number one reason they drop out is money. You know, there are patients who have resources who can continue to cycle, but patients who don't have insurance or patients who can't afford it either don't start treatment or drop out of treatment. And there's not a whole lot one can do from a psychological perspective. But what was really shocking about all these studies was how relatively rare it was for patients to drop out because of physician recommendation or physician censoring. I think average about only about 13% of patients drop out because the physician recommended or refused to provide more treatment. The number one reason all four studies was stress. It's now called the emotional burden of care. And patients very consistently reported that stress was the number one reason why they dropped out. So physician censoring is about 13% and as lower. Right. What is the emotional burden of care registering at? I think for most of the studies, it was about 50%. I don't have all the studies in front of me, but it was far, far higher. Than physician, I might have been bored. I don't actually remember, but the the number one reason by far was the emotional burden. Is emotional burden divided into sub segments at all, like depression or anxiety or stress it, between partners or? It, in that, in those, in those early days, not not no. It was really you know they gave you a list. Was it the physician recommended? And it was really the burden of care. I then did a small study. After that, because I was curious to see, are we going to find the same results in the U.S.? Because all four studies, I think, were out of Europe. I know they weren't from the U.S. And so we did a small study where we followed patients at Boston IVF who had dropped out, who did have insurance. And once again, the number one reason for dropout was stress. And we asked a little bit about stress, but we just really, it wasn't that detailed. So fast forward maybe through, I guess it was about four years ago, you know, I had been spending most of my career looking at the impact of psychological interventions on distress and pregnancy rates. And about four years ago, a meta-analysis came out of Europe, which sort of proved once and for all that psychological interventions decrease distress and improve pregnancy rates. And I thought, okay, now there's a meta-analysis. I don't need to spend my time clinically or my research time doing this. So I decided about four years ago to really focus all my research on dropout rates. And because Boston IVF is so huge, we actually started to look at our database. And so we did a study where I think we looked at about 11 or 12,000 patients who had cycled at Boston IVF. We just published it last June. And we found, once again, the number one reason was stress. But we did break it down. And I believe, and I don't have the paper in front of me, that it was a big component was the impact of the treatment on their relationship. Did treatment of their relationship with staff, with providers? No, no, no. With... The impact of treatment on the marriage. Oh, okay. Partnership, on the partnership. And I, I should have the paper right in front of me. But, you know, in, in that paper, in that study, you know, because we had a, a, a large number of patients in the study, we were able to come up with more definitive information. And it, it, what was interesting, was surprising to me is, yes, the burden of care, distress, et cetera, was number one. 
But it was really surprising to me. In Massachusetts, we have a mandate where six IVF cycles are covered for most people. And we only looked at people who had insurance coverage. But a relatively close second reason for dropouts was the co-pays. And, you know, I think somebody, for example, from California or from New York, who's paying fifteen dollars or $20,000 for a cycle is going to laugh at someone from Massachusetts who's paying maybe 20% co-pays or paying for their medication. But it was still a big factor, not as big as stress, but it was still a factor. It, this might be a rabbit hole, but is there a psychological factor of some in there? Because to your point, in other states, it's much higher. And right. if if it's maybe it's not equally high, but if, if it's still significantly high in a mandated state like Massachusetts, simply the sunk cost of feeling like this is not going to work out or hasn't worked out, it's good money after bad. Do you have any way of even anecdotally hypothesizing on that? You know, I, I think what's interesting is that in Massachusetts, because we have this mandate, people have an expectation that their cycle will be fully covered. And, you know, I, I know, for example, if you look at the mind body program that I run, you know, I've taught people all over the world how to run the mind body program. And in Massachusetts or in Boston IVF, because of all sorts of bizarre insurance things, patients have to self pay for the mind body program. And so Boston IVF has sort of made a decision to make it almost like a loss leader because it, it provides so much to patients. And so the program, I think, is $495, which is not a huge amount of money. Now, I taught somebody in California how to run the program, and they charge $2,000 for the program. And they have an easier time filling their groups than we do. Because I think in California, people think, okay, it's $15,000 for an IVF cycle. What's another $2,000 for the mind-body program? Versus in Massachusetts, there's this expectation that everything will be covered, and I can't possibly pay $500 for the program. So I think some of it is psychological, or that it's simply that in Massachusetts, because of the mandate, people of all socioeconomic backgrounds are able to do IVF. And so, you know, $500 for some people is a massive amount of money, and they just can't do it. And that's perhaps why the co-pays are such an issue here. But, you know, it really is stress. And I think that every study that I know of worldwide that has looked at the dropout rates of insured patients emotional distress is consistently number one. So when we say dropout rates from either the Boston IVF study or the European study, are we talking about people that have discontinued with that provider? Is there any follow-up to see if they went to a different provider? Because I wonder what that percentage of people well, is. Well, in, in Europe, because there's national health care, it doesn't matter what provider you see, they know whether or not you're doing another treatment cycle. At Boston IVF, we actually did this by hand. When a patient seeks to move to a different clinic, they ask for a copy of their medical records. And so we know whether or not they're seeking out a different provider. Plus with this last study that we did in June, we actually we published in June, we actually asked them if they had switched clinics. So we know we only looked at patients who were pure dropouts, who who dropped out of treatment. So what is what what are benchmarks for some clinics, I guess, of like the number of people that are dropping out of treatment that don't necessarily need to be? Well, you know what's really sad is most clinics don't track it. You know how you mentioned that clinics spend so much money to get a patient to walk in the door. They don't track that either, by the way, which, oh, how which much, how drives me crazy. How much money it costs to get a patient in the door? Well, 
I can tell you that, you know, most clinics in this country have a significant marketing budget and they often have sales reps and they, you know, they create relationships with referring OBGYNs and primary care physicians. And it costs a lot of money to bring the patient in. And that first visit and workup is, an, is, is very labor intensive. And once a patient's in the system, it doesn't cost very much for them to do each, for example, IVF cycle. Once they're started, it's not that expensive to keep them, you know, to have them cycle each time. And so you'd think that clinics would be incredibly motivated that once a patient sees a physician to keep that patient as a patient through their treatment cycles. And yet I think there's very little effort throughout the world to keep patients in treatment. You know, this whole new concept is called patient-centered care. And it's, it sort of started in Europe. And, you know, I can describe all the research on patient-centered care, but I think the problem is we don't really know what patient-centered care is in our patient population. When, when you say we don't know what patient-centered care is with our patient population, what do you mean? So basically, we ended up with 893 insured patients who did one IVF cycle and did not return for treatment for at least one year, and they didn't achieve a live birth. Two-thirds of them did not seek care elsewhere. So two-thirds of those patients were pure dropouts. When we asked them why they dropped out, 40% said it was too stressful. 25% said they couldn't afford the out-of-pocket costs. 25% said lost insurance coverage. And 24% said they conceived spontaneously. Of those who said that stress was the reason they dropped out, the top sources of stress were already having given IVF their best chance, and that was 65%, feeling too stressed to continue, 48%, and 36% said that infertility was taking too much of a toll on their relationship. We then asked them, what could we have done to make your experience better? Or what could we have done better to keep you in treatment? And the most common suggestions were to offer evening and weekend office hours and to give easy access to a mental health professional. So to clarify then, we talk about dropout rate. We're talking about people that have had an IVF cycle. We're not even talking about the people that come in for a consult and never pursue the prognosis or people that have gone done for IUIs. No, these are pure IVF patients. Now, I believe a study out of Europe came out recently that showed that two, and this is insured patients, that two thirds of patients who come in for an initial consult drop out before their first IVF cycle. So most of the dropouts happen before their first IVF cycle. So that's in fact where the, that's where the hemorrhage starts. It's getting them from their first visit to their first IVF cycle. That's a huge hemorrhage. Yeah. In and of itself. And one thing that we looked at at Boston IVF is how many patients come for the first consult and don't come back. And I believe the results that I presented at ASRM a couple of months ago, I think for us, it was about 23 or 24% came in for their first consult and then never came back. So that's a huge hit. That's much higher than the European data. I think for that study that showed that two thirds drop out before their first IVF cycle, I think only 6% dropped out after the first visit. A lot of this is when in your talks, people are surprised to hear that emotional burden of care is much more prevalent of a reason than cost or 
other reasons. And no, no, we're only talking about insured patients. For uninsured patients, cost is the number one reason. Okay. Yeah. That's, we're that's only good. talking about patients who have insurance coverage. That's a good clarification. What has surprised me the most in your talks is the success or lack thereof of different interventions. So talk to us a little bit about the interventions that you've tested. All right. So you want to hear something really shocking? As far as I can tell, there's only been one study looking at one randomized controlled trial to look at an intervention to decrease dropout rates. And I did that study. Two separate schools of thought. I can tell you what they're doing in Europe, and I can tell you what our study showed. Which one do you want to start with? Let's start with Europe, and then I want to hear what you did. Okay. So, you know, Europe, actually, and I don't mean to demean people in my field, but Europe has done a lot of work trying to identify this whole concept of patient-centered care. And there are a lot of studies across Europe trying to identify what patients want changed in order to have patient-centered care. So this is sort of the story that I've been following. So they've done multi-country studies like Spain, Germany, Italy, et cetera. And what's really interesting is there's a very close to 100% consistency about what patients say they want in terms of patient-centered care. Now, the, the things they say they want don't make sense. So the, I think that of the top five, like one of them was more information about the semen analysis, more information on the impact of BMI on outcome. And there are a few other things, none of which makes sense to me as a psychologist. So what they did in these studies is they identified these, I think, five factors that patients said they want change to be more patient-centered. But then they did a couple of randomized controlled trials where they made those changes in half the clinics and didn't make those changes in the other half of the clinics, and there were no differences. So what patients say they want doesn't necessarily translate into better perception of care. The only study that I have been able to find which dramatically changed patient perception of care was a study done out of Spain at a clinic called Eugen. And what they did, I think it was published in 2013 in FNS. What they did was they did an overview. I think they asked about 2,000 patients about their perception of care. I think it was right after their first visit. And then they took their 13 physicians and made them go to a weekend retreat to train them in empathic skills communication. And just, I'm bedazzled by that because anybody who could convince 13 physicians to spend an entire weekend learning empathic skills communication, that's a really good center. Anyway, and then after the training, they then reassessed patients' perception of care and patient perception of care skyrocketed. So much so that now at the Eugen Clinics, every employee from receptionist all the way through to physicians gets trained in empathic communication skills. So I think that's really cool. You know, I've now been trained as somebody who teaches empathic skills communication. But as far as I know, there's no clinic in the U.S. that has actually decided to train physicians or anybody else formally in empathic skills communication. So I, I do think that teaching healthcare professionals in our field in empathic skills communication would be a huge key to unlock the perception that we can't change patient-centered care. So I think that's a really important thing. I think we do need to train physicians and nurses formally in how to provide empathic care. What does the training entail? The company that I worked with 
that I got trained by is called Empathetics. And it's based at a mass general. And it's actually based on randomized controlled trials with physicians. And they've really streamlined it. And so for physicians, they need to do three one-hour online trainings where they get CMEs and then a one-hour live training with me. For nurses, it's a one one-hour video and an one-hour live training. But it, no one, as far as I know, has decided to do this. And, you know, it's a relatively small investment financially. In our experience, Empathetics is very reasonably priced. I don't know about what other training programs are like. The downside is the training that they offer is not REI specific. So it's just general physician skills. And so I've, I've done the training, um, both I've watched all the videos and I've done the individual training and it's, you know, how to tell a cancer patient they're a bad prognosis, you know, how to tell a diabetes patient, how to be compliant. And so I, I think it's going to be it's tough to get REIs to watch these kinds of videos, but a live training would be tailored specifically just to REI situations. I can speak to how important this is because our company handles reputation management for a lot of clinics. And I've also done a lot of research on a more rudimentary form of research, but I've gone through thousands of reviews in my analysis over the years. And the way that it comes out is so clear that the the patient's reward empathic communication yep. and when they perceive it as not being empathic, it can really take a turn that ends up being a public relations headache or, mm-hmm. or even just a, a negative review or a series of negative reviews that really upset physicians. Oftentimes I wrote about some of the triggers that people like say back to them. One of it, you know, one thing that I could imagine being beneficial for empathic training is talking about prognosis for how you're going to, or talking about how you're going to lower BMI before moving on to another prognosis. That can sometimes we see that as he called me fat. He told me I was too fat to ever get pregnant. Yep. And that's how that's how it's relayed online. Or if it's about ovarian reserve or advanced maternal age, he told me I was too old. Yep. And so what's this like when you when you pitch this idea of empathic skills? You know, I, I, I think there needs to be an RCT looking at the impact of patient-centered care, not just on patient satisfaction. Or let me rephrase that. I, I think there needs to be a, an RCT looking at the impact of training physicians and nurses in empathic skills communication, not just looking at, at on the impact on patient perception of care, but looking at the impact on dropout rates. And I think if you could do such an RCT, showing that that training directly translates into lower dropout rates, you would have a very valuable product. To begin with that, you would first need to know how many patients are dropping out in order to right. be able to, to right. make that decision about return on investment and consequently justify the return on investment, measure it at the very least. Right. As you mentioned, don't have that in place where they're, They've no idea. they might, they think that they have, a, they, they may very often think that they have a handle 
on that and say, well, we know that it's a, about this much, but to your point, if you ask them, to, you know, can I see a report? Can I look in and at the data, they don't have that. So what should, what could clinics do to- so Let me just interrupt for a second. So when I got that first study funded, that must've been maybe 2005 or 2006, I wanted to just look at our dropout rates and see why. And it was funded by Merck. And I remember the day I found out I got the grant, we had a physician dinner that night, coincidentally. And one of the physicians said to me, you know, hey, Allie, what's new? And I said, oh, I just got this really big grant from Mark to study why our patients drop out of treatment. And the physician's answer was, our patients don't drop out of treatment. I see patients all day. They don't drop out. And I said, because you don't notice. The patients that you remember are the ones you keep on seeing. The patients who drop out, you have no you know, if you don't, you don't notice a negative effect. And so we have to start noticing. I mean, it's certainly Boston IVF, and I know a lot of the big clinics are tracking dropout rates pretty carefully. And, you know, now we're doing lots of, you know, patient surveys. And, you know, every month I get a printout of all the comments that patients make. And I don't know if you remember this, but last year at ASRM a year ago, that was 2017, I did a, a TED variation talk I don't remember, it was on Halloween, actually. And I talked about patient dropout rates and how to retain patients and the fact that it's not pregnancy rates. By the way, here's a little tidbit for you. Studies show that patients prioritize patient-centered care over pregnancy rates. So physicians think that patients prioritize pregnancy rates. They don't. Patients prioritize how they're cared for over their chances of getting pregnant. But anyway, so I gave this TED-like talk. And you know, I was producing all this data and I said, you know, we need to start paying attention to patients who are dropping out. And so for this talk, I looked at probably the top 10 biggest clinics in the U.S. And I looked at online patient comments and they were frightening. They were terrible for everybody. It's not, you know, it, every clinic had these one-star reviews all over the internet. And so in my TED talk, I did a slide of an example of some of these comments. And almost all of them came down to communication issues with physicians and nurses and the patients. And the patients just don't feel that they're being cared for or that they're being heard. We talked about a, a similar overlap with Rebecca Flick on an earlier episode, which is at some point, the digital technology, what used to be marketing sort of overlaps with this. And as we move as we're increasingly in a society where we get everything else instantly. I wish if I can find the link, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes, but something of 90% of people answer a text within 10 minutes or open a text within 10 minutes. Contrast that with what the clinics are able to provide and how quickly they're able to, to get information. That ultimately affects patient-centered care. Absolutely. Well, but this is also, you know, I've been doing talks from Merck all over the country for the last, I don't know, five or six years. And I had been giving a talk on the importance of empathic skills communication. And now I'm doing a talk on patient-centered care. And one of the issues that clinics are having that the nurses report to me is that millennials expect to get information instantly. And so you hear constantly from millennials, well, I called the nurse at 9.05 and it's 9.20 and no one's called me back. Or I had my blood drawn at 7.30 and by nine o'clock, no one's called with my results. So we get these on social media because we're handling clinic social media. We'll get a Facebook message that says, I called at 10 a.m. Yep. And then an Instagram message that says, yep. I just Facebooked you guys. 
it's it's the instant thing. So the other thing I want to talk about was the one RCT, which looked at dropout rates. And I, I you know, you may remember because I presented it at MRS last year, at, at, no, like a year and a half ago to the business managers group. So we got a study, another study funded, Jackie Boyven and I, she's a psychologist in Wales. We got the study funded from Merck to look at can a psychological intervention change dropout rate behavior? So we, we looked at patients at Boston IVF. I think we recruited, I think it was 160 women who were about to do their first IVF cycle who had insurance coverage. And we randomized them. Half of them just got routine care. And the other half, we mailed them a packet. And in this packet were two different forms of interventions. One was, it's a like a cognitive coping sheet. So it said, you know, here are things that you can do when you go to the waiting room to distract yourself. Or these are things that you can do while you're waiting for test results. And we had one series of, of suggestions for the stimulation phase and one series of suggestions for the waiting phase. We also had relaxation strategies. So for the stimulation phase, we had instructions on how they could do mini relaxation exercises that they could use, for example, before a blood test or before an injection. For the waiting phase, included in the packet was a CD that had my voice leading them in several different forms of relaxation techniques. So all we did with the 75 or 80 intervention patients, we mailed them a packet. We don't know if they used the packet. We just mailed them a packet. And then we followed them for a year, okay? What we found was the patients who got the packet, and again, we don't know if they used it or not, but the patients who got the packet, we presumably used it because their depression and anxiety scores were significantly lower than the control group, okay? The control group had a 15% dropout rate. The intervention group had a 5% dropout rate. What was the, what was the control group? 15%. 15. So and the, and the three times as many. Yes. So we reduced the dropout rate by 67%, okay? We published this study in FNS, and I believe one clinic asked us how they could get that packet. Now, when I presented this at MRSI to the business managers, at the break, pretty much everybody gave me their card and said, how can I get the information on this packet? So, but you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like if I stood up and said, okay, this drug, which costs $12, is gonna reduce your dropout rate 67%. Do you think they would have all said, Sign us up, you know, where can I get this drug? The packet costs us $12 to make. Is the packet, the CD, the mailing out, and presumably the difficulty of that being adopted for the exact reasons that we're talking about, mm -hmm. is that the genesis of the apps that? Yes. For to come, for to strong? Exactly. It's exactly right. So, you know, when the packet came out, you know, I considered that packet to be a very small intervention. A, because there was, I mean, there was some cognitive coping suggestions and some relaxations. And we don't, you know, millennials don't like to read stuff. They like stuff on their phone. And so soon after the results came out, Liz Grill, who's a psychologist at Cornell, she said to me, like, every one of my patients wants something on an app that's directed for infertility patients. You know, there's Headspace, there's Calm, there's all sorts of stuff out there, Insight Timer. Those are all relaxation and mindfulness but they're general. They have nothing to do with infertility. And so she and I literally at one of the Resolve Night of Hope galas uh, sketched out Ferticom on a napkin. And Ferticom probably has 
a hundred times more power and information than that packet did. What was it like working with developers? Is that your first time working with software developers? <laughs> you know, it's really funny. Listen, you know how, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, someone wrote an article in the Atlantic Monthly, a woman, and I forgot her name. She was my daughter's graduation speaker. And the title of the talk of the article was You Can't Have It All or A Woman Cannot Have It All. And, you know, Liz and I, I have to say, she's my work, my, she's my business wife. We want to write the Atlantic Monthly article about what it was like for the two of us to start a business together as two psychologists who have no technical background, no business background, no legal background, no nothing background. We're both clinicians. We're both mothers. We're both pet owners. And I, we have so many insane stories. Like I remember once we had a conference call. It was like on a Wednesday night. And it happened to be the night that my daughter had to make hamantashen to bring to school. So I'm literally with my phone next to me doing this conference call on the creation of the first app while my daughter and I made 266 hamantashen. So in like little pastries. So, you know, we had some help at the very beginning. I don't know if you know Jake Anderson and Deborah Bialis, who founded Fertility IQ. So I'd been, I've been friends with them for a while and they had given us some ideas about how to talk to developers. And then one of our physicians, Steve Baer, he knew of a startup in Boston that did app creation. And they, they were actually the ones we went with. And it was, if you talk about steep learning curve, this was Mount Everest. It was crazy that, you know, Liz and I are therapists and we had to write the content that would create an app. But we, we lucked out along the way. I mean, we had this amazing app developer. We found this incredible designer. We learned everything the hard way. It's the only way to do it that I've <laughs> yeah. so far. Yeah. I think that's really incredible. And it's something that providers, practice admins, nurses can give, can offer to their patients or direct them to. to well, you know, and, and Faring licensed both apps. And so right now, both apps are free throughout the U.S., Canada, and they're about to launch it in Latin America. And it's available in English and Spanish. And, it, you know, it's interesting because... It's the Ferticom has been very well received. And I think, you know, I talked to a patient of mine a couple of days ago and I had suggested last week that she downloaded and she came in on Monday yesterday and said, oh my God, I'm just using it all the time, which is nice to hear. But I remember last year at ASRM, I don't remember if you were at that presentation. It was the SREI faculty at, it's the Sunday of ASRM. So I I was there, yeah, I remember. It was like 14 months ago. And I was asked to give a talk on psychological interventions for infertility patients. And I decided it would be improper for me to mention Ferticom because I co-own it. And so I thought it just would be obnoxious for me to mention it. And so I'm in my talk and there are what, maybe 60 or 80 physicians there. And I'm talking about all the psychological interventions. In the middle of my talk, a physician stood up and interrupted me, which never happens at ASRM during these formal presentations. And she actually said to me, you are doing the audience a disservice. Have you ever heard of this app, Ferticom? And I'm like, yeah, I actually have heard of it. And she said, it is incredible. Like I have all my patients download it. And she later told me that whenever she has to do like an endometrial biopsy or a hysterosal pendogram or anything painful, she meets the patient. She has the patient download Ferticom on their phone. She has them listen to one of the relaxations and then she does the procedure. And she said it's made a big difference for her because the patients have less pain. 
that's a perfect application of it too. It is. Yeah. But it's also, you know, my, for my patients, you know, what do you do if it's 11 o'clock at night and you've just done your first IVF cycle and it's day 27 and you start bleeding, you know, you're freaking out of your mind. You can't exactly call your doctor. Your partner doesn't get why you're so upset. And so you go to Ferticom and you find that exact situation and there's six cognitive behavioral relaxation strategies to calm you down in the moment. And, you know, I don't get paid per download, so I don't feel like I'm being improper talking about it, but it's something that patients can use. And it's the only thing out there, you know, Liz and I came up with the 50 situations, which are most likely to cause stress for our patients. And, you know, that's what patients need in that moment. They need to know what they can do to feel better. Yeah. And anybody that's ever looked at the trying to conceive hashtag on Instagram knows that people are begging for these answers. And that application is a really contemporary way of being able to meet people where they're at. One big question that I have that I feel practice managers, practice owners should know is because you and I, whether they agree with us or not, you and I both agree that they are not tracking these numbers and dropout rates and no no some clinics are some clinics are i know for a fact boston ivf tracks it and i know a number of large centers are tracking dropout rates that many aren't and so those that aren't how do they start how do they implement the system well you know pretty much everyone these days does emr and you know you can look at return rates i mean we have you know a data analyst right now and he has a monthly report and We've been doing, um, you know, we've been sort of doing offshoots of this research. So, for example, our scientific director, Denny Sackis, came to me about two years ago and said, what's the relationship between age and dropout rates? And I said, well, women over 40 have the highest dropout rates. He went, okay, that makes sense because their prognosis is the worst. And so it makes sense that a 42-year-old is more likely to drop out than a younger woman. And he said to me, but does that mean women in their 20s? have the lowest dropout rates. And I said, no one's ever looked at that. So we actually went and did a study where we looked at dropout rates in women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And we published that in human fertility last year. And what we found was, not to our surprise, that women over 40 had the highest dropout rates. The women in their 20s had the same dropout rates as women up through age 39. So a 26-year-old who has, a, in general, a phenomenal prognosis has the same dropout rate as a 38-year-old. And it doesn't make sense. It intuitively doesn't make sense. And so, you know, I don't know why these young women drop out. It might be because they figure they can drop out for a couple of years and get psychologically stronger and then come back. Or it might be that because they're so young, they just don't have the coping skills, that they just don't know how to handle these negative treatment cycles. Or it could be, the physician and the physicians and nurses haven't adequately communicated to them how good their prognosis is. But whatever, whatever the reason, we need to educate our younger patients in a very different way. We need to support them more and we need to make sure they know their prognosis because a 26-year-old should not drop out of treatment. A good place to start to get the hard numbers of what it is in your practices with the EMR. Yeah. Dr. Elisdomar, it has been a pleasure having you on Inside Reproductive Health. Is there anything you want to share with the audience that I didn't ask you before I let you go? I feel that if we can figure out the best way to keep patients in treatment, 
it's a win-win. I mean, I'm a psychologist. And so, you know, I don't make money for keeping patients in treatment, but for me, it's all about if patients stay in treatment, they're more like, they're, they're much more likely to get pregnant and have a baby. And that's what we want for all our patients is to get pregnant and have a baby. Now, obviously clinics, there's a fiscal relationship here. So for clinics and for pharmaceutical companies, they want patients to stay in treatment so that they make more money. So it's a win-win for everybody. If patients stay in treatment, the patient's far more likely to get pregnant and have a baby, which makes the patient happy. But along the way, it makes the clinic happy as well. Allie, thanks so much for coming on the show. I love talking to you. (laughs) Thanks, Griffin. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you have a strong opinion about today's episode, we want to hear it. Agree, disagree, or have another point to add, please email podcast at fertilitybridge.com and tell us if you recommend a guest or a topic for a future episode. If you're ready to skyrocket your fertility practices growth and double your IVF cycles, schedule your fertility marketing discovery call by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you just want to learn more tactics to market your fertility center, download our free ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing on fertilitybridge.com, also available in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast, and we look forward to talking more fertility shop on future episodes.